Father, uh, we turn our time over to you and pray that we would see from your word what you have for us in Christ's precious name. Amen. I do not have an overhead this morning. Uh, As I worked on this passage, I started making a set of slides and then decided they really didn't didn't help uh, make the point. So I'm going to start by uh, a little illustration. Every year, the United States spends about $75 billion on intelligence gathering. We employ well over 100,000 people in more than 15 different agencies who are all as, uh, part of that, uh, that particular effort. And the essential mission of all of those people and of all of those dollars is, in effect, to learn as much as we humanly can about what our enemies are up to, about who they are, what they know, how they're funded, what capabilities they may have to bring us harm, precisely what harm it is that they intend to do to us, and when, where, and how they intend to do it. But, beloved, you and I have an enemy that makes all of those enemies look like juvenile delinquents. Our enemy is more intimately acquainted with the nuances of evil than any man. He knows far more about deception and disguise and trickery and subtle distortion of the truth than any man will know. He's been pulling the strings of evil and tyrannical rulers for thousands of years, and he's very, very good at it. He is the destroyer of men's souls. He is the one named in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, as the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. He's the master of evil and the enemy of everything that is good and godly. So you would think that it would be of paramount importance for us who are the children of God to know everything we possibly can about that enemy, right? To know how he thinks, to know his strategies, his deceptions, his subtle ways of subverting and suppressing the truth, his tactics for dividing the church of Jesus Christ so that we, we are not able to effectively do the work of Christ. You'd think that we'd need to know a whole lot about the finer points of that which is evil so that we would be prepared to defend that which is good. But in the passage we're looking into this morning, Paul tells us that's not the way we stand against the schemes of our evil enemy. In fact, in the verses from the passage that our kids just sang this morning, Paul gives us one final glimpse in this great epistle of God's upside-down kingdom. We're going to talk more about those specific verses shortly, but we need to see them in the context of everything that Paul presents in this chapter. Those verses, Romans 16, 19, and 20, actually 17 through 20, are stuck right in the middle of a long list of commendations and greetings. And there are a number of things that we need to recognize from that list of commendations in order to understand where Paul's going in this passage. Open your Bibles to Romans 16 if uh, if you have not already. And I'd like for you to track it. Whether you've got an electronic Bible or a paper one, I'm not going to have it up on the screen for you. 
The commendations are found in, uh, and the greetings are found in verses 1 through 16 and in verses 21 to 24. The list of greetings that are presented here, that is presented here, is the most extensive list of its kind in all of Paul's letters by quite a long shot. The word greet appears 21 times in 20 verses here in chapter 16. As we saw at the beginning of this epistle and again in chapter 15, Paul's earnest desire and intention was to come and visit that church in Rome that he had never yet been able to visit before. And he was going to visit them. His intention was to visit them on his way to Spain, uh, which is an area that had not yet been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church of Rome was of, of very great importance to Paul. And it's clear from these greetings, these extensive greetings, that even though he had not yet been to Rome, God had given him a great many connections and treasured relationships with the saints in that great city. The first person Paul mentions in verses 1 and 2, and the one who gets the lengthiest comment from Paul, is a woman named Phoebe, whom Paul describes as a servant of the church at Sencria. Now, Sencria was a town about eight miles from Corinth. And during his second missionary journey, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, and he wrote some epistles from that city. And he stayed at uh, he stayed at a home. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he, in, if he was in Corinth for a year and a half, and Sincrea was just about eight miles away, he certainly got to know a bunch of people from Sincrea, and this lady was one of them. Um, many students of this epistle believe that Paul actually delivered this letter to the Roman church by the hand of this woman, Phoebe. Um, And that that helps explain why she's mentioned first and why she is mentioned with such emphasis. Paul admonishes the church at Rome to receive Phoebe in a manner worthy of the saints and to provide help to her in whatever matter she has need of that help. And he explains that this is only fitting because Phoebe has been such a great help to the saints and personally to Paul. Prissa, which is short for Priscilla, and her husband Aquila are mentioned next, starting at verse 3. Paul stayed in the home of this couple while he was in Corinth during that 18-month period in his second journey. Aquila was a Jew, and he and Priscilla were tent makers. And we find in Acts chapter 18 that Paul worked with this couple as he stayed in their home both at tent making and in the propagation of the gospel in the region of Greece called Achaia and the establishment of the new church in that area. This couple also traveled with Paul as he headed back to Jerusalem from Corinth. When they came to Ephesus, Paul left Aquila and Priscilla behind and he proceeded on to Jerusalem. This couple came upon a Jew named Apollos who was teaching about Jesus, and they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. It's very interesting. And after that, Acts 18 records that Apollos powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Paul's ministry was being multiplied mightily through this faithful man and woman. 
And according to Paul's words here in Romans 16, they even have at some point risked their own necks to save his life in in a life-threatening situation. Another person in this list toward the end whom with whom Paul had particularly close ties, of course, was Timothy. Um, his child in the faith, his, his faithful and trusted co-worker to whom he wrote two of the letters that are contained in the New Testament. Now, after commending Priscilla and Aquila, Paul launches into a list of names of many brothers and sisters in Christ whom he is asking the Roman believers to greet on his behalf. Now, I recently learned uh, that a that a handful of these greetings show up in slightly more extended forms in one particular Greek manuscript. It was discovered by an archaeologist who was rummaging through Bob Deffenbaugh's garage. <laughs> and it was, a, it was actually a manuscript fragment that was found under a greasy pan of mismatched nuts and bolts. <laughs> there were five of these greetings that we see in this chapter that are found in that one manuscript in more extended form, and I wanted to share them with you. The first is Urbanus, a beloved brother who always seemed a bit uncomfortable when we had to travel, travel outside the city. You have to look at the name to get that one. Asyncretus, a dear brother whose timing was always a little off. Phlegon, a faithful worker who suffered from constant sinus drainage. Narcissus, a rather handsome man whom I encouraged to stay away from undisturbed bodies of water. And finally, Philologus, a man who was very fond of words. His mother was miraculously cured of her problem with stammering during our brief visit to Pergamum. All right, so, tough room. So, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't resist playing with some of those. I'm not going to walk through Paul's entire list of greetings here, and one name at a time, but there are a few general observations that I believe we need to make from what Paul says in these verses. First and foremost, he makes it eminently clear that his work of ministry is far from being a solo effort. Now that should, of course, come as no surprise to us based on what Paul said back in chapter 12 about the measure of faith and the spiritual gifts that God gives to each individual believer to bring about the effective working of the body together as a whole. Paul always saw himself as only one of many instruments that God was using to spread the name of Jesus Christ throughout the Gentile nations and to establish his church. And we must always have that same mindset. The work that God is doing in his church and through his church never focuses on anyone other than the head of the body, Jesus Christ. There's a reason that my role when it comes to decisions affecting this body consists of one voice and one vote among several elders. There's a reason that the bulk of the ministry that gets accomplished through the body at CBC is done by you guys and not by paid staff. Last week was a prime example of that. We are all ministers. We are all co-workers, yoke fellows, each tasked with one necessary piece of the ongoing work of Jesus Christ through this body. And all of the attention, all of the glory, all of the focus is always on the head of the body, Jesus Christ. 
Now, the second observation I'd like to to glean from this list of greetings is that it is, it's very clear here in Romans as it is in other New Testament epistles and in the Gospels and in Acts that women were powerfully used by God in establishing and building up the early church. Women are mentioned and commended in this list at the same level as men. By most accounts, at least nine of the people Paul mentions in verses 1 through 16 are women. The first two names mentioned are women. He mentions women who served the church with their husbands and women who served as individuals, either because they were unmarried or perhaps in some cases because their husbands were unsaved. In other passages in his letters, Paul draws very definite distinctions between the roles that men and women are to fulfill in the body of Christ. And he presents clear limits on how women are permitted to minister, particularly in respect to men. You can look at 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy chapter 2 for Paul's specific instruction about those things. But does that mean that women have a lower status in the eyes of God or that they are somehow of less importance for the, for the work of Jesus Christ than men? Well, God's emphatic answer to that question is no. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. Paul's point is that our standing in Christ... Our status or position in Christ in the eyes of God is the same for every one of God's redeemed. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Now, by the way, according to many commentators, there are probably some slaves or free men in this list. It was fairly common in the Greek and Roman cultures to name slaves using numbers, like Tertius, which means third, or Quartus, which means fourth, and both those names are in this list. Tertius, in fact, was the amanuensis or transcriber to whom Paul dictated the words of this epistle, and, and he wrote them down. Uh, paper was, was a little expensive, and so you wanted to find people who could write small and very neatly. <laughs> and uh, and Paul, Paul says when he writes, you can see that he writes in a big, broad hand, right? So, so uh, he wasn't the guy to do it. Tertius introduced himself and verse 22, and he mentions a few others who had been helpful to Paul's ministry, including a guy named Quartus. If, as Paul has made so clear in this epistle, the only life that we possess is that which belongs to us in Christ, and the only life that is in us is Christ, then how can there be a distinction in value between you and any other believer in the eyes of God? That would be like me saying that Christ in me is worth more than Christ in you. The fact that one of us is male and another female, or that one of us is of Hispanic descent and another of European descent and another of Asian descent, 
or African descent, or that one is rich and one poor. Such things are of absolutely no consequence to God because our only worth is Christ in us. A third observation I'd like to point out from this list of greetings has to do with the great love and honor with which Paul speaks of the brethren and to which he calls each of us to demonstrate toward one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 2, already mentioned that he instructed the Roman believers to receive Phoebe in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. And the word receive in that verse includes a strong element of eager anticipation. It's the same word that Paul used in Titus chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, when he said, The grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And the word looking for is the word receiving. Paul is telling the Roman believers to receive Phoebe as one whose coming is eagerly anticipated and is of great value to them. I hope that our brother David Dean and his wife get that kind of reception from us today. We should be filled with eager anticipation and with great joy to welcome back into our midst a brother or a sister who's been putting themselves on the line for Christ in faraway places. Uh, At about noon today, we get to slay our version of a fatted calf. I think he's already been sliced into small slices, and we're going to get to have a meal together with uh, David and Young and and their boys. And our demonstration of love toward one another is not just reserved for times when a brother or sister comes back to us from a faraway place. Paul says in verse 16, as he does in many of his epistles, greet one another with a holy kiss. You and I should always consider ourselves blessed to see one another wherever we get to see one another and to delight in coming together. And we should show that we consider ourselves blessed. Now I'm going to camp out for a while on the exhortation that's found in verses 17 through 20. It's the final exhortation in this great epistle. And it's an exceedingly important one. Paul interrupts his greetings and commendations for these several verses. And he says in verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, and that's the same wording that he's used repeatedly when he's about to give us a very important instruction and appeal. Like in Romans 12.1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The fact that Paul interrupts his list of greetings and commendations to raise this last exhortation is, I think, significant in and of itself. The work of Christ through His church is a corporate matter. And it requires the diligent application of each person's gift to the task of advancing the gospel together and of building up the body to do the work of Christ together with maturity and effectiveness. And in the same way, the assignment to protect the body from evil influences that would seek and delight 
in dividing us and rendering us less effective, that task, too, is a corporate matter. God calls every individual in the body of Christ to be vigilant, and he calls us to be vigilant together to protect, to guard the word of life that has been entrusted to us by our Master and Savior. His exhortation here is to read it, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. His exhortation is for us to be vigilant, to be on the lookout for any who might cause these kinds of hindrances that are contrary to the teaching we have learned, the legitimate teaching of the Word of God. And he presents this scathing indictment of their motives. He he says, they are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And the picture he paints here of how persuasive and tempting the words of such men are calls us to be especially vigilant because what he's saying is they sound really good. He's saying that that the things that they present to Christians sound enticing and they seem to make sense. These guys are wolves in sheep's clothing. They look good. When Paul says that such men are slaves of their own appetites, the word he uses for appetites is the word stomach. And it's a picture of gluttonous self-indulgence of one's own fleshly desires. He uses the same word in Philippians 3 when he's making much the same point. In Philippians 3, verse 2, he says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. And then in verse 18 of that same chapter, he expands his description of these workers of evil. He says, he says Whose God is their appetite, their stomach, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And that's the key. They set their minds on earthly things. In 2 Peter 2, Peter presents a similar indictment against false teachers who secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And he says they were destined to that destruction. He goes into much greater detail than Paul does in describing the uh, the evil motives and the deceptive and enticing tactics that such men employ to draw others away from the truth. But the idea that's most prominent in Peter's description of these wolves is the idea of sensuality. The very essence of the falsehood that such men place in the path of God's people is the lie that says real life is focused on the things of the earth, the things that appeal to the flesh. And when we think of sensuality, we typically think of self-indulgence, right? The things like gluttony and drunkenness and sexual immorality. But there's another form that an earthly focus takes, and it seems in its appearance to be quite the opposite. It's what you would call self-abasement. And in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that 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 kind of supposed piety is 
false religion. It is of no value against fleshly indulgence. Self-abasement is when you very militantly prevent or call people to avoid enjoying the things that God has given us to legitimately enjoy. What's common to both of those errors, self-indulgence and self-abasement, is that they are all about what you can see and hear and taste and touch and smell. But the reality that God presents in His Word is that such things are not worthy of our attention at all. They're peripheral. They're great. There are many wonderful things that fit that description that God has given you to enjoy, but they are not worthy of your focus. As Paul said in chapter 8, the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Holiness is not found either in the obsessive pursuit or in the obsessive avoidance of earthly and fleshly things. It's found in the obsessive focus on Jesus Christ who is our only life. We are called to be fanatics. We are called to be obsessed with only one thing. The one who is our life. When men seek to draw us or our fellow believers toward any focus other than Christ, we are to turn ourselves and our brothers away from that enticement. And that assignment applies to all of us, not just to those who are elders or deacons. Paul says to the whole church, keep an eye out for those who present such a threat to the body of Christ. This exhortation from Paul makes me think of the vigilance of David when he was a young man before he was king in Israel. If you remember, in 1 Samuel 17, this very large Philistine named Goliath was taunting the armies of Israel. And David came to Saul, and David was the smallest in stature among all of his brothers. And he said to Saul, your servant, David, was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him, and I attacked him, and I rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard, and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. And he was. Beloved, when we take a stand against the workers of evil who seek to draw God's people, our people, away from the truth, away from a steadfast focus on the one who is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, we can be absolutely sure that God is with us and we can be absolutely sure that the world is steadfastly against us because we pose a threat to everything that this world holds dear. I'm going to ask you, do you think that the kind of threat to the church that Paul was describing here is a thing of the past? 
Do you think that the false teaching that he's talking about here was just a symptom of the times in which he wrote these epistles? I hope you don't, because if you do, that complacence is dangerous for the body of Christ. We find ourselves today in a culture that is demanding with every ever-increasing zeal that we as Christians call that which is good evil and that which is evil good. It's demanding that we cave in to those who say that truth and righteousness and life and love are all about the freedom of every man to indulge his own selfish appetites without accountability to anyone. That's how the world describes and defines good. Any who call that kind of self-indulgence evil have now become the enemies of the culture. And guys, our young people are becoming convinced in droves that that understanding of good and evil is somehow legitimate. Our own kids are being enticed by the smooth talk and flattering speech of those who say that the uncompromising proclamation of God's own words about what is sin and what is righteousness are somehow unloving. That 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 proclamation is unloving. And it's intolerant. And it actually prevents people from coming to Christ. If you don't believe that, I challenge you to get on Facebook or Twitter and look at what your kids' friends are posting on the subject, for instance, of same-sex marriage. Look for, for a little while and see how quickly, how quickly legitimate questions about how government, whether government, who's lost its moral compass, should be able to draw boundaries for, for people, how quickly that legitimate question turns into an indictment against Christians for proclaiming what God has clearly declared to be sin and righteousness. A great many young people who profess to be believers in Christ have bought into the notion that it is unloving and thus ungodly to declare what God's Word clearly declares about certain sins. That to do so pushes men away from believing in Christ. I have seen professing Christians argue that position every bit as aggressively as their unbelieving friends. But here's the rub. Here's the rub. When you change what God says about sin, you remove the need for the Savior. And that is the single most unloving thing you can ever do to anyone. The moment that you tell somebody that their sin is not sin, you remove the need for the Savior. There's nothing more unloving than that. Beloved, if you think it's your call, young people, if you think it is your call from God to polish the rough edges off the one whom the Bible calls the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, you're standing against the gospel, not working for it. Yes, make sure that when people are offended, they're offended by the gospel, not by you. We are always called to present the truth 
to speak the truth in love and to speak the truth with great humility, knowing without question and being very diligent and deliberate about explaining that we who are bringing that message deserve condemnation just as, just as much as the one to whom we're bringing it. That's very important that we do that. But if we are not on the same page as the Holy Spirit when it comes to what He has said about sin and righteousness and judgment, then we will be working against the gospel and not for it. This stuff sounds good. It sounds compelling. And it is a pernicious, devastating lie. It's my God-given responsibility and the responsibility of everyone else in this room to stand steadfastly against any teaching that is contrary to the teaching we have received from God. This is His Word. This is His words. It does not matter how persuasive or sweet-sounding the lies of this world become. Now, what's God's solution to this kind of threat? Is it for us to study the world's way of thinking very carefully and to become very familiar with the reasoning and the tactics of those who stand against the truth? It would be very easy to conclude that that's the most effective way to defeat the efforts of, our, of the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of Christ. But that's not the solution that Paul presents. In fact, the one he presents is quite the opposite of that. Paul doesn't say, be wise in what is evil. Instead, he says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. In 1 Corinthians 14.20, he says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, and yet in evil be babes. But in your thinking be mature. In evil, we're supposed to be infants. We're supposed to be naive. We're not supposed to master evil. We're supposed to master good. Contrary to popular opinion, there is no virtue or value in being worldly wise. Now, this is the principle behind the exhortation in verse 17 to us to protect and guard the church against false teachers. We are called to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. That is how we guard ourselves and the body of Christ against evil influences. Now, how do you manage to be innocent of what is evil when you are so bombarded by evil? (laughs) It no longer takes any effort at all to become an expert in the things that are evil. Evil is in our face everywhere we turn. Whatever boundaries may have formerly existed in our culture, are mostly a thing of the past. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word uh, as is good for building up, for edifying, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, how does that work when fourth graders use language that used to make drunk sailors blush? Have you ever noticed that there are no longer any words that fall into the category of over-the-top? They're all commonplace. What about the kind of evil that appeals 
to the eyes instead of the ears. Psalm 101, verses 2, 3 and 4 says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Guys, how do you set no worthless thing before your eyes when you live in a culture that bombards your eyes with worthless things? A culture in which modesty is considered a vice. When you can't even go to a grocery store and and buy a loaf of bread at the checkout without having your eyes bombarded by worthless things. Well, the answer, and this is exceedingly important, is that you cannot do half of the assignment. You cannot be innocent in what is evil if you are not obsessively wise in what is good. If your only strategy for doing battle against the evil that assaults you from every side is just to somehow choose not to be affected by it, you might as well be picking flowers in front of the enemy's machine gun nest. You've already forfeited the battle to the enemy. And that pretty much sums up the only strategy that many Christians adopt for dealing with the evils that surround them. They just pretend that they're not being affected by those evils even though their senses are being saturated with them. That's not how it works. You cannot be innocent in what is evil if you are not obsessively wise in what is good. What is it, brothers and sisters, that you actually study? What is it that you meditate on? What is it that you that you deliberately cause your mind to dwell on? When you turn off the TV and you put away your iPad and your computer and your smartphone and you pull the earbuds out of your ears, what is it that you intentionally dwell on with your mind? If your answer is, well, I never really do that, then you have forfeited the battle to the enemy. You know what happens to the church when we find hours every day to be entertained by the things of the world, but we can't find 15 minutes to behold God and commune with Him, to saturate our minds with the knowledge of the Holy that comes only from His revelation of Himself and His Word. We forfeit the battle to the enemy. In Psalm 19, David gives us a surefire prescription for being wise in what is good and for being armed to the teeth to do battle against the enemy. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, Enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warmed. (laughs) In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. 
Also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's your prescription. Meditate on the word of God. There is no other way to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. If you're a child of God through faith in Christ, but you've been neglecting that one legitimate obsession, the obsession with the truth that is revealed only by God, and if you have thus been handing yourself over into the enemy's camp, the wonderful reality is that there's nothing keeping you there. Paul made it infinitely clear already. You have been, if you belong to Jesus Christ through faith, in him alone. You have been buried with him in the likeness of his death and you have been raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection to newness of life. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. And get on with the fight. Walk back across the line. The only reason you're hanging out in the enemy's camp is because you're choosing to or you're confused. All you have to do is choose to set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on this earth. In the first part of verse 20, Romans 16, Paul tells us what the eventual outcome will be as we persist in being wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. He says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's not worded as a conditional. Paul's not saying God won't crush Satan under your feet unless you get it right when it comes to being wise in what is evil and innocent and what is good. He's simply saying, here's what God tells you to do, and here's what God is going to do through you if you're his child. He's going to crush Satan under your feet. That's his promise. That's what's going to happen. And it is most certainly no coincidence, guys, that Paul's wording here corresponds so closely to the wording of God's curse against Satan in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God's curse against Satan speaks of the enmity, the conflict that God would bring about between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ, Messiah. And because we who believe in Christ have been identified with him in his death, and resurrection and are now fellow heirs with him because our life is in him. The seed of the woman who is doing battle with the seed of the serpent includes us. Christ's body. The enmity, the spiritual battle between these two seeds, it's part of the curse of the fall and that means we can't just walk away from it. The warfare that we face daily is both unavoidable and relentless until God's plan of redemption is fully realized, until the day when he absolutely crushes Satan under our feet. But that is going to happen. The word for crush in verse 20, 
means to break in pieces. It means to shatter. If there was ever any question about the decisiveness of the bruising on the head that the seed of the woman would inflict on the seed of the serpent, Romans 16.20 resolves that question. God will crush Satan. He will shatter Satan. He will utterly destroy him and all those who are associated with him. And the amazing part of this promise is that God's defeat of Satan will be accomplished through us. His people. His church. His body. And that defeat is already underway. Every soul that is saved through the faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a crushing blow to the world forces of this present darkness. It is not by changing governments or economies or cultures that we stand against the work of Satan in this world. Beloved, we defeat the curse of sin and the schemes of Satan one soul at a time. Paul didn't say, I am not ashamed of the Christian worldview. He didn't say, I'm proud to be a capitalist conservative. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. You and I are the bearers of that righteousness and of that message that saves. It is through His body, it is through His church that Jesus Christ is now carrying out His work of undoing the curse, an outcome that was made certain at the cross. And it is through that same body that He will finish that work. It's all by His power, not by ours. It is by His doing, not by ours. We're just instruments But oh, what a glorious assignment it is to be instruments of the living God. When Jesus returns and splits the Mount of Olives in two and fills the valley of Megiddo with the blood of his enemies up to the bridles of horses of the horses, we're going to be right there with him. His return will be with the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, who will follow him into battle on white horses, Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. And that heavenly army consists of the same ones who were described six verses earlier in Revelation 19, those who were clothed in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That army is us. That army... Love it, brother. That army is the redeemed of God, the bride of Christ. When he binds Satan and casts him in the abyss, we're going to be right there with him. When he finally throws Satan in the lake of fire and brimstone and judges those whose names are not found written in the book of life at the great white throne, we will be right there with him. Until that day, God calls us this side of heaven not to cope until Christ returns, not to bide our time in some sort of passive avoidance of the world forces of darkness. Guys, the world forces of darkness are coming after us with all they've got 24-7. 
God's call to us is to be overcomers, to be conquerors, to be those through whom Jesus Christ destroys the handiwork of Satan in the hearts of men. Our battle is not against men. It is against Satan and his demons who are pulling the strings of every man and woman who has fallen into his snare. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the weapons with which we wage that war are not weapons that men can hold in their physical hands. They're much, much more powerful. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3-5, through Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Beloved, our battle is against falsehood. It's against the lie. It's against every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are not caused merely to endure that falsehood. We are called We are called to oppose that falsehood. And our undefeatable strategy is to arm ourselves with the full armor of God that He has freely given to us in Jesus Christ. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the Word of God, and fervent, constant prayer. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. That's not a threat, it's a promise. Loving Father, we thank you for that promise. We thank you for that calling. We thank you, Lord, that you've seen fit to make us slaves of God and of righteousness. We thank you that you have made us the very limbs of the body of Jesus Christ as he continues his perfect work on this earth his work of undoing the curse. We thank you, Father, that we who deserved only condemnation get to be warriors for the truth and that we will stand with Jesus Christ and you will be the one who makes us stand. And that's all absolutely certain for us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our one and only Savior. We thank you, Father, that the day is going to come when we will know exactly what it looks like when you crush Satan under our feet. We give all the glory, all the praise, all the fame, all the honor to Jesus Christ. And it's in his name, Lord, that we pray. Amen.